Thank you, Marcia. And uh, thank you for all your service. I, every time there's a meeting with you, I know the chat is going to be filled with just additional good stuff. And thank you for inviting me to this meeting and, uh, and welcome to all. Uh, may you uh, enter this meeting in good health and spirit. I have a little housekeeping I got to do myself. I've been really battling with depression uh, this past month. And so I, uh, I'll just start crying out of nowhere sometimes. And um, for those of us who have this, you know, really severe form of depression, you know what the hell I'm talking about. And you know, <laughs> you more than know that, yeah, life goes on and you just got to face it. You know, it's like uh, yesterday I'm at work. I'm not listening to any sad songs or anything. And just started doing this, you know, and my coworker walks in, just looks at me and I just like, you, you, you know, you, you know, I'm a depressive and this is just what we do. So it's, it's not, you know, it's not going to last forever. And it's one of those things. Uh, just one of those things that uh, I also have to deal with. So uh, I, I will say just a trigger warning for those of you who've uh, never heard my uh, uh, lead. It is harsh in places. Um, I think, uh, you know, talking about our lives and trying to sanitize it at all is probably a great disservice, but it's also trying to be aware that others might be triggered. So I just give you that trigger warning. Uh, I, I've also come to a point in my 42 years of sobriety, or excuse me, 40 years of sobriety, uh, that uh, I don't blame anyone anymore. Uh, I mean, this is what happened. Uh, Marcia says it best. I mean, hurt people hurt people. And I grew up with a, you know, a bunch of hurting people. And, uh, and you know, one of the things I've really been interested in uh, over the last several years has been about trauma and how trauma, especially early trauma, uh, affects our lives. And, um, and so this is one of the things that I talk about. And then I also realize that trauma is also one of those things that you can never predict what is going to trip somebody's trigger. So yes, I, uh, you know, absolutely. Um, I'm glad to be validated by people like uh, Gabor Mate, the, you know, Canadian psychologist who, uh, you know, talks about the lifelong effects of trauma, uh, the internal injury, and, uh, and that we still have to continue going through it, you know, and that we, you know, some days are just better than others. Uh, I will tell you this, uh, my family remembers history a lot differently than I do, <laughs> um, and that's okay. Uh, there are things that have happened in my life that my family, especially my brothers, have no recollection of, um, and that's okay. Uh, and, I, and I'm also know that the mind is such that my memory may not be all together all there either. So I engage in, there's, I, I love words. And one of my favorite words is confabulation. I don't know if you've ever heard of that word or not, but the word means that um, uh, generally there are several definitions for it, but the one that I like is that um, when you have a blank spot there in your memory, 
it, it creates a lot of dissonance. So, and for me, it creates a lot of dissonance because I'm like, I'd rather have a story that I can live with <laughs> than a story that I might not even know exists and, and have to live with that. So, uh, you know, sometimes the confabulation is just a survival thing. Um, but I will say that uh, in spite of however this sounds, uh, I do take full responsibility for my life and I am responsible. And uh, I, you know, got to give credit to where credit is due. And that is that uh, I, I found that ability to take care and to become responsible uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and that's many, many years ago uh, back in, uh, well, you'll find out. So my first chapter of my book, if, <laughs> if we want to pretend that this is an audio book, is called Aces in Trauma. And uh, I want to begin with uh, the opening lines from uh, the Indigo Girls song, Closer to Fine, because it's, I think everybody could open up their lead with, with this set, with this stanza. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Maybe give me insight between black and white. And the best thing you ever done for me was to help me take my life less seriously for it is only life after all. Yeah. Now darkness has a hunger that's insatiable and lightness has a call that's hard here. And I wrap my fear around me like a blanket and I sailed my ship of safety until I sank it. And I came crawling on your shores on January 22nd, 1982. I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous and I haven't had to stick a needle in my arm, uh, take an alcoholic drink, um, pop illicit pills or snort stuff up my nose or do any of that other happy stuff uh, in combinations or singly uh, since that time. Um, so this ACEs, ACEs stands actually is a play on words. It's an acronym that stands for the um, Adversive Childhood Event Scale. Uh, if you have not ever taken it uh, and you kind of wonder about, you know, gee, why am I feeling some of the things that I'm feeling and you're curious about trauma, you might want to do some research about ACEs. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's a very thoroughly researched um, uh, theoretical point of view on trauma and how uh, early childhood trauma affects us, especially even later on in life. Uh, I have a very, uh, as an educator, uh, I have a very uh, intense interest in how trauma affects children today. And their lived lives and how they're trying to get through school and how they're trying to make the best out of a world that for many of them, uh, just like ourselves, uh, it's totally insufferable. And, um, and so I have a, an interest in that. I was, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, I always like to, to say that I, I was born miserable. <laughs> um, and I say that uh, given the work of uh, many who've done the effects of trauma, inner, in utero trauma, uh, my, I found out 
uh, when I was around 27 years old that uh, had abortion been legal back in 1959, my mother would have aborted me. She, she just made that announcement one day when I was going through something. And, and that, it's, it startled me. It shocked me when she said that. Um, but it answered a real big question that inside of me was that I never really ever felt wanted in my family of origin. And um, one of the things that uh, this, you know, revelation provided me was kind of like an answer. Well, hell, I, I never felt like I belonged here because from the get-go, <laughs> I wasn't welcomed here. And, um, you know, I, I know that, and, you know, my mom has since passed away. She passed away in 2005 and I made peace with her, but... Uh, over the years, we had a number of conversations about what it was like for her because she was a very damaged child too. We're we're talking about a woman whose father, her own father, prostituted her out when she was eight years old. Uh, she developed uh, gonorrhea of the lower intestine when she was eight and had. 30 some odd inches of her intestines removed. And so, you know, here's a woman who was severely traumatized herself. And, you know, she just gave birth to my older brother uh, 11 months earlier, or just a few months earlier. And now she was pregnant with me. And, you know, she was all of 18 and wasn't real thrilled about the prospect of having to raise two infants in the godforsaken town of Edwardsburg, Michigan, population, you know, at that time, I think was like 600 people, so not a very big town. And, um, you know, I, so I, I know that one of, in one of the conversations that we had, my, um, I, my mom and I were talking about hate, just a, you know, just as an emotion, and she used to say, I hate hating so much. And, and I don't know about you, if you can relate to that feeling, but I, I hate hating as well. It's not a very comfortable feeling, but I, I can think of myself being in utero and, and, and feeling my mom's conflict of hating being pregnant with me and then hating that she was hating that. And it certainly, I think, had a lot to do with, you know, later formation and everything that, that I've had to deal with uh, in my life. Uh, my father, who was an alcoholic, who, uh, my, uh, uh, who just passed away in uh, February, um, he was a real authoritarian uh, and pretty much an anti-intellectual. And... Uh, you know, we grew up on a farm. He was a blue collar worker. Uh, he certainly did believe in, you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. And uh, so corporal punishment was a staple for him. Uh, but he, uh, he drank a lot too. And to my dad's credit, when, uh, you know, many years later, after making amends and, you know, repairing the damages best we could, uh, I'd start talking to my dad about things, you know, pastiming with him. Uh, you know, he would just say, I, I have no recollection of it. I, I really have no recollection of what you're talking about whatsoever. 
you know, things that were very, uh, uh, you know, big events in my life, things that were, you know, uh, that he had done to me in my life uh, were inconsequential to him, which also, you know, just talks about the, you know, how the mind can be so fickle. But to his credit, he would say, you know, he drank a lot back then, and he just doesn't remember a lot of the things he did uh, while he was drinking. And, you know, I can relate because I was a blackout drinker and I drank to the point of having no memory of many parts of my, you know, drinking career. Uh, I came from a family of drunks. Um, as far as I know, I'm the, uh, the one of two that is a, an active recovery. I have a cousin who uh, is recovering alcoholic. Uh, I had a brother who died of, of cancer, <clears throat> but it was, it was no doubt because of his active addiction that he died at the age of uh, 37. And um, my mother, who was also a drinker, uh, she died uh, at a young age. She died just uh, at 65. And um, I have brothers who drank, um, uh, uncles who drank. Uh, so I, I have that family history of alcoholism. And so uh, drinking for me was something that wasn't uh, uh, abnormal at all. It was pretty much expected behavior uh, in our family. And, um, and I, you know, I, I started drinking really at a, at a young age. My dad, um, <laughs> when, I, when my mother would go out for a girl's night out, my dad would have uh, to babysit the boys and, you know, his, his method of babysitting, which he has no recollection of, um, in his later years, he had no recollection of this at all, but uh, he, he did actually uh, do this. Uh, he would make hot potties. I don't know if you, how many of you know what a hot potty is, but it's just a little tea, a little whiskey, a little honey. And you, you know, give your kids a shot of that. And, you know, we went right to sleep usually is what we did. So I, I have no idea how old I was, two, three, when my dad started giving us hot potties, but our family was the kind of family that, you know, there were beer, wine, you know, booze sitting at the card table or at the, uh, you know, coffee table or whatever. There was no, uh, no one got really upset if the kids came up, you know, uh, and took shots, sips off their beer and, and, and off their drinks. Uh, so that was, again, kind of like uh, just established behavior. Uh, some other items on my ACEs scale here is that um, uh, we had a, lived on a curve, uh, US-12 in Edwardsburg, which was a very uh, notorious curve. It was like a dead man's curve. And uh, when I was uh, 11 years old, 12 years old, somewhere around in there, uh, uh, the Vanderbosch family uh, uh, was driving eastbound on US 12 and uh, these two guys in a javelin uh, who had been drinking, uh, who were drunk, uh, were heading westbound. And uh, they were doing about 80, 90 miles an hour. The Vanderbosch car was just getting up to 55 miles an hour. And right in front of our house, they had a head-on collision. And, um, you know, at 12 years age of age, um, uh, you know, I, I 
witness death for the first time, uh, uh, two of the uh, children who were in the accident died. The uh, driver in the uh, uh, speeding car died. Uh, the mother in the uh, uh, Vanderbosch accident died. And um, I'll never forget uh, one of the things that I was responsible for was uh, there was a young man named Victor. Uh, he was actually a kid I went to school with and uh, his uh, um, cutter and artery had been uh, snicked and he was bleeding profusely from his, from his neck. And I remember my um, mom uh, handing him off to me and she was, had a compress on his neck and she just said, hold this on his neck until you know, a, a, a medic or a doctor comes by. And, uh, and so I was holding that against him and I can still to this day feel the blood dripping through my, my fingers, the hot, the heat, the, the stickiness, the tackiness of it. And, and while that is happening, um, they brought one of his sisters next to us uh, and she, over the course of just minutes, went from flesh colored to just, you know, pearly white. Uh, and she had died right in front of me. And all of this time, I'm trying to keep Victor's neck creaked so he doesn't have to witness that. I don't know why I had that as a, as a young kid, why I was thinking about that, but I just thought of everything else. He didn't need to witness that either. Um, you know, I, again, I, you know, in this chapter, uh, I tell you, I came from a pretty working blue collar family. We were you know, working poor family. Uh, my dad was a tradesman, um, you know, and we farmed uh, to supplement our income. Uh, money was always a stressor in our family. And, uh, you know, but we never, never were on uh, welfare. Uh, it would, you know, it was, that was considered a sin of beyond sin would be to collect unemployment or to collect welfare. And uh, we were admonished to not even ever think of anything like that uh, if we were growing up. And so uh, I remember those things quite well. My first opportunity um, to drink uh, came when I was still a, a kid and my first controlled opportunity, there were three kids, uh, well, two and myself, uh, Randy Wendigler, Dennis Sampson and myself, we somehow managed to scrape up enough money and I believe it was one of their brothers who were old enough to buy booze and we got uh, four bottles of booze farm wine for three kids so booze farm wine you know kind of like mad dog 2020 I you know some of us remember it some of us never heard of it because you know, it doesn't exist anymore I don't think but uh, anyway it was my first chance at controlled drinking at 12 or eight years of age and um and at 12 years of age, I took my control drinking and had a, my first blackout drunk. And, um, and, and I did some pretty incredibly humiliating things in that uh, blackout drunk. I guess one of the things that I did, according to my, the two buddies that were with me, is that I uh, stripped naked and, uh, and tried to chase down a grouse, uh, uh, which is a female pheasant. And, uh, and, and uh, that was humiliating, right? But, 
And I and I probably wouldn't bring that topic up next week at the sex talk version, <laughs> but uh, you know, but I, it, it, it's still a humiliating event, and and most people probably having been so humiliated would probably think I don't think I will ever drink again if that's the kind of behavior it's going to lead me to. That was not my thinking at all, folks. My thinking was, wow, where did I go? Whatever that was, wherever I went, that was magical. It was phenomenal. And all I could think about was wherever I went, I wanted to get back there as soon as I possibly could. And that's pretty much how I spent, uh, you know, my, my life in terms of my drinking life. Uh, just a couple other things on those on that ACES thing, and then I'll move on to uh, you know the next chapter. Uh, I grew up in a uh, in a pretty abusive household. Uh, after my mom and dad uh, divorced, it got really bad. But prior to that, my mother was a very promiscuous woman. Um, I think she felt a lot of guilt about um, not wanting me. And, uh, and still having me. And I think one of the ways that she tried to, to, to compensate for that was by spending individual time with me, one-on-one -on -one time with me. And that would have been great had, you know, we, you know, did probably, uh, you know, mother and, you know, son kind of things. But my mom was, a uh, like I said, a very promiscuous woman, and we lived in a very small town, a population of about 600 people at the time, um, and my mom had no real confidant, anybody she could talk to about anything that was going on in her life, and so, I don't know, six, seven years of age, my mother started confiding in me all of her sexual dalliances with, you know, men that were not my father, and uh and she went into rather, you know, explicit detail. And, um, and so I knew things sexually and I was sexualized at a pretty young age uh, that again, you know, I don't blame her. Uh, I'm just saying what is, uh, you know, and she, uh, you know, I'm sure had no intention whatsoever. I think she thought like most people back then thought, you know, he's so young, it, probably he probably isn't even going to to remember or know or think twice about anything I'm telling him um and of course she was wrong um because you know there's no doubt that I did um and as a result of that I, I you know one of the things that happened was that I had no one to talk to and I became uh you know the, the one that's holding this knowledge um my brothers didn't know about it. My dad did know about it. I think he was buckled and, and knew about it, uh, but he didn't want to divorce my mom. But even then it got too much uh, and they finally ended up divorcing. Uh, my mother ended up marrying or remarrying a, a very brutal alcoholic uh, man uh, uh, who uh, just died back a, several years ago uh and this guy was you know he he was uh a piece of work um he uh he was a convicted felon for starters he was one of those people who the nicest guy in the world when he wasn't drinking right 
uh, it was, you know, my opinion, I think he was quite uh, uh, narcissistic, actually. But uh, when he was drunk, he was brutal. He beat my mother uh, twice into the hospital. I remember her being beaten, you know, black and blue. He busted her eardrum, her tailbone. Uh, he infected her with, uh, 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 you know, with uh, gonorrhea and sent her to the hospital for that. And he, uh, he also, being a convicted felon, wasn't supposed to be uh, in possession of any guns, and he was. And um, one day he uh, decided he'd just, you know, take target practice in the house and he started shooting up the house and just unloaded all 18 rounds in the um in the house that we lived in and my two younger brothers were at, at home at that time um one other story about him just to give you an idea of the kind of guy he was that i um in high school uh i, I was on the debate team uh, in forensics and um and on Saturdays, I would have to go to, you know, the de debate meets and the like. And at the time, I was still too young, couldn't drive. But I woke up one morning and it was uh, and went to the top of the stairs and I saw uh, my stepfather. He had the uh, 22 rifle leveled off at my mother's head. The barrel was probably, I don't know, three, four inches away from her, you know, between her eyes. And um, and I tiptoed back and and back in the 70s, and again, I, you know, I don't know internationally how things were for you, but here in the States, uh, whenever you had uh, you know more than one phone in the house. Uh, one of the features that Ma Bell put on there was that whenever you picked up one of the phones, the other phones would give a little ding. It would ring to, to alert everyone that, you know, that someone was using, you know, one of the extensions. So I was just praying like, a you know, all get out that, that I could pick up that phone and call the cops. Uh, I had that number memorized before 911. Um, because we had to call the cops on him so many times, but uh, off went that little bell. And, and the only thing I, I heard him say was that he was going to kill me and my mom and my brothers if I called the police. And so that terrified me and I hung up the phone and, and I went downstairs and said, I still have to go to this debate meet. And, you know, he was drunk enough that they took me. <laughs> and of course, you know, I'm just a basket case when I show up at the debate meet. And uh, Frank Tanzerite, and I often talk about, because uh, I'm involved in teacher prep, and Frank Tanzerite was my English teacher and the debate coach, probably one of the most uh, heroic people I know, uh, just a phenomenal individual. Uh, he, uh, because he saw that I was, you know, just a basket case. He asked what was wrong. And of course, he immediately goes into action. And, you know, we call the cops and all of that. And I was worthless during the debate that day, but I still, you know, hung in there. And um, by the time the debate was over and everything, and it was time to, to head home, Frank uh, had 
asked if uh, I felt safe going home. And I said, well, you know, I'm scared. I wanted to make sure because, you know, we couldn't get any information from the police about, you know, what had happened to my mom. And so he understood and he, you know, ended up taking me home. And wouldn't you know it, you know, my stepfather's car was in the freaking driveway and he was home. And uh, I walked in the door and, uh, you know, to find out that uh, he actually had threw away the gun because he knew if he got caught with the gun, he was going to be, you know, back in prison because convicted felons aren't supposed to own guns. And long story short, they threw me under the bus. They said that I was live making it up. You know, they told the police that I was just, you know, dramatic and craving attention and all of that happy horse shit. And, um, you know, so there I was uh, having to look at, you know, the fact that this man is going to be still in the picture for a while. Um, I'll give one other little example of this guy. He was also uh, a sexual abuser. He tried to sexually abuse me. Um, uh, you know, he had asked on several occasions if I'd ever had sex with men. I mean, he had been in prison uh, and he had. And um, But I think the worst thing he did is that shortly after the incident with my mom and, you know, calling the cops is that I was walking up the stairs and he came up behind me and, um, and he grabbed me by my testicles. And I mean, he squeezed them painfully hard and, and he just laughed evil and, and letting me know he literally had me by the balls. And, uh, that was like one of those feelings of, of, of absolute powerlessness that, uh, again, people who've experienced that level of trauma know what I'm talking about. And what do you do? Who do you turn to? Who do you ask for help? Um, you don't. And um, anyway, that's pretty much um, you know, what I grew up in. And so when I say I was born miserable, uh, you know, uh, it's funny talking to my brothers. They have a lot of great memories growing up in our, you know, in in our household and everything. Uh, they have great memories of my stepfather. He was never abusive toward them, uh, but he was toward me. They, you know, they admit that he was abusive to my mom, but uh, and and they, you know, I still remember him shooting up the house. But they don't have anywhere near the animos that I have uh, for the man. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about, you know, the fourth step and fifth step uh, in regards to my stepfather uh, in a bit. So, um, so moving into chapter two, I, I, I'll call this the, the chapter on resiliency. There were some things that I had going in my favor that uh, probably kept me uh, together as well as it could. Uh, one was school. Uh, I loved school and uh, School is where I felt like I was safest. And um, I was, you know, the teachers liked me by and large. And, um, you know, it was one place where I could excel. Um, uh, hard work, I mean, of all the things that uh, my dad and mom, uh, they instilled in, you know, all of us a very strong work ethic and, uh, and you know, I've always worked hard in my life. And uh, 
And that is something that during my childhood, I think also helped create that sense of resiliency uh, against you know, some pretty daunting odds uh, with trauma. Uh, I'm a voracious reader, love to read, love to read back then. And, uh, and I had some friends uh, that, you know, I couldn't tell them everything that was going on, but at least I had friends that uh, they could tell things were going on and still liked me and, and loved me anyway. Uh, I had some great teachers, but I also had my anger. And I think that the anger was one of the things that really created, uh, it was a very dysfunctional uh, form of resiliency, but it was one of the things that kept me in the game. Um, and, uh, and, I, and I turned that anger into violence. And, um, and I was a very violent, angry kid. And, and I took it out on my brothers mostly. Uh, and again, it was because they, you know, when I did try to, to tell them of stuff that was happening, they just absolutely refused to believe me. And I, and I understand. I mean, I, I was not um, always the most honest kid growing up. But when I was honest, I wanted to be taken seriously, and um, and it was just all considered, you know, craving attention and the like. Uh, but the anger served me, and it served me well because it kept me fighting. And I think having that fighting spirit uh, is a form of resiliency. Uh, and finally, and this is one of the things that uh, maybe some of you can relate to or not, is that. I pretty early on uh, in my youth uh, became an atheist. Um, and I became an atheist uh, because it was a lot more saner to, to believe and not have belief than to try to uh, believe in something in magical thinking that uh, just didn't work for me. Uh, it worked for others, but it never ever really worked for me. So the atheism, uh, and I started reading um, uh, Ayn Rand. <laughs> was one of the people I started reading, um, and she, you know, was a pretty uh, uh, strong skeptic and, and and other things. But uh, that led me to read people like Bertrand Russell and Madeleine O'Hare and others. And, uh, and basically got a pretty good understanding, you know, about uh, why, you know, belief systems are the way they are and that why atheism uh, worked best for me. So those were the kind of like the resiliency factors. So chapter three is where I kind of talk about finding the magic and, uh, and <laughs> after we just talked about atheism. Uh, but when I talk about finding the magic, of course, I'm talking about finding drugs and alcohol. And I've already told you about my first drinking experience was a blackout when I was 12 years old. Um, I, uh, I started using drugs at, at a really young age, too. Um, uh, I'm wearing a Pink Floyd shirt. Uh, my, my stepbrother... Um, had just returned from Vietnam back in 1972. And uh, he drove a really decked out Javelin and, uh, and, he, and the Javelin had a couple of speakers in the back 
and he had an old eight track player. And some of you might remember the old eight track players and he had just gotten uh, the dark side of the moon by Pink Floyd. And so I'll never forget that uh, he, uh, having just come back from mom, he had some uh, pie sticks, which were uh, marijuana that were soaked in opium. And we were driving in the, the, the back country of uh, Michigan. And I'll never forget listening to uh, uh, Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, and I don't know how many of you know that album, and, uh, but there's this, uh, the song, The Great Gig in the Sky. And it starts out with the, the words, now I'm not frightened of dying. Any time will do, I don't mind. Why should I be frightened of dying? There's no reason for it. You got to go sometime. And I'm, and I'm sitting right in the back seat, right between those two speakers. And that tie stick is just kicking in and the beer is kicking in. I mean, it is like a full sensory experience. And at the age of 12, I lost whatever fear I had of dying, I lost that fear of dying at that moment. I can pinpoint it to that moment. And I've had incidents in my life where death was a real, was real in facing me. And that fear just has never been there. Um, and that's kind of scary because with the depression mixed with suicidal ideation, uh, that becomes a real issue to not be afraid of dying. Uh, you have to use other mechanisms to want to keep living because the fear of dying is not the thing that's going to that, that keeps you from from taking your life. And I just want to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, you know about the uh, suicidal ideation. I just uh, you know in uh, depression that really started kicking in. Uh, I think uh, evidently so in my teen years. Uh, I became really um, uh, self-medicating is what I think a lot of us do uh, in, in our addictions. And I found that drugs and alcohol uh, were my way of dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, I had my, of uh, 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 course, you know, throughout high school, uh, it's amazing that I even made it through school, but, uh, you know, I, I did a side hustle, uh, primarily I dealt, you know, drugs and alcohol. I was, uh, you know, working full time as well. I was lucky. I was 15. I had enough, you know, facial hair on my, my face that I could, you know, pass for somebody who was 18. I got card, you know, uh, served at the bars in Michigan, which was an 18 state. Uh, having a drunk for a stepfather, uh, one of the things that he always would do is that uh, whenever uh, he'd go to the liquor store, he always wanted to bring one of the one of the, us with him. I don't know why. I guess it was probably because cops. Uh, but the Sterling Street liquor store in Elkhart uh, was his one of his favorites, and uh, Larry, the guy that used to run the place, knew Larry. And well, long story short, was that. Um, I needed some booze one time and I thought, well, well, what the hell? I'll go into the Sterling Street liquor store and I'll tell Larry that my stepfather needed a case of Pat's Blue Ribbon beer and he was out in the car and just wanted me to run in and get it. Well, 
they sold me the beer. They sold me a case of past blue root beer. And that was my excuse. I could go, <laughs> go to Sterling Street or Louis Dave's and a couple other places, liquor stores that Larry would go to and just say that my stepfather wanted the beer and, or, and I could buy it. And uh, no questions asked. Uh, it was kind of like buying cigarettes back in the day, you know, just you could buy cigarettes for your parents and it wasn't a big issue, even though you were buying them for yourself. Um, so, you know, through my uh, teens, I, I, you know, did all the drugs that I could possibly get my hands on. Um, I did a lot of PCP, angel dust. I don't know if people remember that stuff or not, but uh, it's uh, pretty much an animal tranquilizer and, um, and did a lot of that uh, coupled with, you know, uh, drinking and, and the use of other drugs. Uh, the whole purpose was that I found combining these things together would get me into an alcoholic blackout, would get me into blackout quicker. And the whole purpose of partying was to black out. It wasn't just to enjoy yourself. It was to get shit faced. You know, did I remember anything uh, that I did drunk and uh, wasted? And, um, and I pretty much had that reputation throughout high school. Uh, I remember at my 20th high school reunion, uh, I'd been sober for a number of years. And uh, the one of the people who, you know, it was uh, organized the, the reunion, asked me to come up to receive the person most changed. And I was, I received the most changed person award. And she just pointed at me and said, you remember Dan, you know, he was Spicoli. For those of you who know the Fast Times at Ridgemont High movie, Spicoli was the character who was always stoned. Uh, and, uh, and that was me. And, you know, it was a side hustle. I, you know, like many of us, uh, I always had enough dope to sell so that I would really never had to go into too much debt for my own drugs because I sold enough to keep my, myself in, in dope. So from the age of 12 to the age of 22, it was um, full throttle drinking and drugging. And, uh, but toward the end of my drinking, uh, my, my suicidal ideation really started kicking in. And uh, I, you know, at the time of, at the age of 22, the only thing I thought uh, worth living for was uh, what I was going to die doing or, you know, do dying. And that uh, was this pretty elaborate plan of hitchhiking out to the West Coast from uh, the Midwest here and uh, uh, Indiana. And, um, I keep, I got to remember, this is international. This, you folks are you know, all over the, the world here. So uh, anyway, you know, uh, uh, hitchhiked from Indiana out to California. And along the way, I was going to lose all forms of ID. I was going to make sure that I uh, uh, lost all of my uh, uh, driver's license, my, my beloved library cards, my... Uh, uh, I was going to lose my, my fingerprints by dipping my fingers in battery acid at truck stops. I could just picture myself doing that. And I wanted to make sure that I had no dental records. So I would get in fights with people who would be, you know, obligingly, you know, knocking 
the teeth right out of my head uh, in fights because that's just where I was. And, um, and by the time I got out to the West Coast, I just wanted to um, do a swan dive into the Pacific off one of those beautiful cliffs and just become part of the food chain. And at 20, 22 years of age, that was my dominant thinking morning, noon, and night. When I was not, when I was cogent, when I was coherent, that's what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking about sobering up and, you know, what I was going to do and how I could improve my life or any of that happy horseshit. The only thing I was thinking about was getting out of here. And, um, and it's a scary thing when you're, when you, when you contemplate suicide so pervasively, it becomes an obsessive, just constant thought. Um, and, I'll, and, I'll, and it wasn't the thought of suicide that really scared me into any action. It was the, the night of January 21st, 1982, when I uh, came out of a blackout and I'm at the top of the stairs at at my mom's house and I'm hallucinating and, you know, and I'm hearing her, the boyfriend that she had at the time was a avid hunter and he had like, I don't know, a half dozen guns in, uh, in the house. And I just, I heard those guns calling my name. I could hear them talking to me. I was hallucinating that. And and then I had this just overwhelming like voice tell me that, you know, I was going to kill myself and I would kill anyone who tried to stop me. And that, that's what terrified me was that I really knew I was capable of doing that, that I would have killed anyone who would have tried to stop me. And that scared me. Um, when I was a teen, I went through a lot of uh, uh, child psychologists that, uh, because I was so violent as a kid that, you know, I, my mom, my dad didn't know what to do with me. They, you know, Dr. Spock wasn't working for him anymore. And so they started sending me off to see, you know, child psychiatrists and psychologists and and I didn't, you know, I was embarrassed to be there. I didn't know that getting help was what the goal was there. But I remember the last psychologist that I saw told me something to the effect, and this is when I was like 18 years of age, that if I was ever in any trouble and I needed help, that uh, Oaklawn Center, which was the name of the facility he worked at, uh, opened up at 7 a.m. in the morning and they would see people for free for one hour from 7 to 8 a.m. Um, and I, all I know is that the next morning on January 22nd, 1982, I showed up at Oakland Center at seven o'clock in the morning. And I ended up talking to a guy who, uh, who introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. His name was Freeman Schrock. And, um, and you know, I told him about the suicidal ideation, about the hallucinations and, and all of that. And, 
And then you asked me a question that just really looking back at it now makes, you know, no sense, but a lot of sense. Uh, he asked me how much I drank. And I, you know, I nonchalantly said, you know, I drank about a case of beer a day and whatever else I could get my hands on. Um, and, you know, he then told me I sounded like him, that I was an alcoholic. And that um, if I needed help, that, you know, the only thing he could think of that would really help me would be Alcoholics Anonymous. So there was a meeting that morning, 10 a.m., uh, uh, and he told me where it was at, on the right off the corner of Fifth and High in Elkhart, Indiana. You got to love the sense of humor of alcoholics, the corner of Fifth and High. Yeah, I like that. That was funny. Because, you know, again, we in the States, we sell things by the fifth and not by the leaders or anything like that. A fifth is almost a, almost a leader of booze. Anyway, um, fifth and high. And um, he, uh, I went to that meeting and um, with really no knowledge of what AA was about. And all I know is that I saw that on the wall, they had the 12 steps and the 12 traditions. And the, the word that stood out to me the most was G-O-D, God. And I'm like, this just ain't gonna work for me. I just knew that this was not the place for me. And, you know, they, they went ahead and they, you know, opened the meeting, they did a prayer. And I don't remember if I prayed or not. Uh, I remember, talking a little bit and saying, you know, that I was, you know, suicidal and was afraid I was going to drink and, you know, kill myself and kill anyone else. And, and at the end of the meeting, they, you know, they prayed and I'm on my way out. And uh, this guy asked me just the silliest question. He asked me, he goes, Hey, Dan, do you have a copy of the big book? And you know, being the smart ass that I was um, and the, you know, pretty militant atheist I was, I said, yeah, I've got 22 different translations of the Bible. Which, which one are you referencing? Because to me that people would refer to the big book always meant referring to the Bible. And, um, you know, he kind of laughed and he said, no, no, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, um, I, and I said, no. And so he handed me a copy of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, uh, you know, the, the old saying was that, you know, the answer, he even told me, he goes, the answer you're looking for is going to be found in those pages. And, uh, and I really desperately wanted to believe that. And, and I took that book home and I started reading it and I did find the answer right away. And it wasn't in Bill's story and it wasn't in, you know, we alcoholics. It wasn't in any of that. It was in the doctor's opinion is where I found the answer. And Dr. Silkworth talks about alcoholism being a disease. Now I no longer subscribe to the disease model of alcoholism. I will let you know, I think the, the research and evidence has taken us far beyond that. It's much more complicated than, than a disease. But the, the, the analogy that it was like a, an, an allergy made a lot of sense to me because 
what happened when I poured booze into my system, things happened to me that just didn't happen to other people. Um, other people didn't want to continue drinking. They would, they would only, you know, I would, I would finish their drinks for them. Are you done with that? <laughs> you know, I would drink their drinks. Um, normal people didn't do that when they put booze into their system. Um, they didn't do things like, you know, get into blackouts, uh, wrapping their, you know, car around a uh, mailbox, uh, waking up in strange places with strange people and um and wondering you know what you had done that night even though you knew you you know were sexually involved with them and, and um you know people didn't when you know putting booze into their system you know they didn't have the the the, the type of reaction that i did and and it made sense to me and the thing was is that there was that whole God issue there. And I, you know, was pretty, uh, pretty adamant atheist. And, uh, uh, and I, I showed up the next, well, actually, I, <laughs> I went out with a friend that night, January 22nd, 1982, with a friend. Uh, we went out to a bar that I had actually had gotten kicked out of just about six months earlier. Uh, one of that bar, I didn't drink. And I didn't drink and I was like, absolutely couldn't believe it. And I, and I went the next day, I went to an AA meeting and I was like, guys, this AA stuff really works. I went to a bar last night and I didn't drink. <laughs> and back in 1982, when AA was still in it, well, at least around here in the Midwest, uh, in the United States, that was probably not the best thing I could have said at my second AA meeting. Um, I, I got uh, with a group of people who were pretty much fundamentalist evangelical uh, uh, alcoholics. They were big book thumpers, AA Nazis, whatever you want to call them. Uh, and they didn't take too, too kindly to that working, it works message. Uh, you know, they, they pretty much told me, you know, what an idiot, you know, you, you, you went to a bar and, and you didn't drink, you're just lucky, that's all, you know, it has nothing to do with anything or, or Alcoholics Anonymous working or not, you just, you know, if you don't want to get wet, you don't go into the water kind of stuff, so, uh, but I, 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 one of the things they told me, though, even after all that humiliating, you know, talk was keep coming back. And um, and those were words that I just, you know, rarely ever heard from people was like, keep coming back. By and large, in my life, it was keep on going. Don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. Just keep on moving. And so uh, keep coming back. And I did. And I became just like those people. I became a right-wing <laughs> fundamentalist, evangelical, big book thumping, AA Nazi. I can cite you chapter and verse of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 and 12, as well as, you know, um, uh, 
living sober and several others uh the little pamphlet on acceptance and many other you know aa approved literature uh, i just became uh, dogmatic uh and fundamentalist and um and and grabbed a hold of recovery and sobriety with a with a vengeance and um so much so that my nickname was no longer depressive dan i became adrenaline dan you know i mean i just uh uh like a revivalist minister was pretty much how i i acted um and you know alcoholics anonymous is a great substitution for alcohol and drugs if you don't want to deal with any of that other happy horseshit that you know you've dealt with that you you know were avoiding dealing with in your drinking AA can be very helpful in you know not dealing with that as well um but it can also be the very tools that you use to start unpacking that stuff and that's what happened to me fortunately um about three years into my sobriety uh I ended up going to college. Uh, I was never one who was slated to go to college. Uh, I grew up in a family, like I said, of blue collar workers. I, I, I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. And I'll never forget that um, I convinced my mom to get me a biology kit. And a biology kit was just like a chemistry lab. It had, you know, the biology kit had specimens in it and had a little, you know, uh, vivisection uh, kit with it as well. So you could dissect the specimens and had a couple of books on stuff. And, um, and anyway, um, I loved it because with that, we, we had a, growing up where I grew up, we had a, a pond in the backyard of some, one of our neighbor's house. And there was a huge bullfrog that we called big greeny. And, um, and somebody shot big greeny uh with a bb gun and the bb got lodged in in uh big greenies leg and i'll never forget that all of us were con so concerned we thought that that because it was festering it was you know it was uh a wound and it was festering and we all thought that big greenie was going to die and, and and i'm like but i just got a biology kit i'll do i'll do surgery on big greenie and we'll save his life and 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 it happened. We did, you know. We we saved the the, the, the frog's life, and uh, um, and I'll just I'll never forget how good that felt. And and I'll never forget sitting on the back porch and my dad coming home, and I'm just glowing over my my biology kit and about and dreaming about becoming a medical doctor. And I and I'll never forget. You know, my dad coming through the doors there and asking me what I got. And I and was just as excited as a little child could be. I told him, you know, my biology kit. And I thanked him for my birthday gift. And I, and I told him, I said, now that I got this biology kit, I'm going to become a doctor. And what he said to me, he, has no he had no recollection of saying it years later. But what he said to me at that moment was probably one of the most, you know, traumatic with a small T kind of things that was ever said to me. And he said to me, he goes, a doctor? You'd have to go to college to be a doctor. And college is for sissies. And none of my boys are sissies. 
And the dream was gone to become a doctor, just like that. And um, and so I don't know. It was uh, it was weird how I entered college. Um, I was working at a polyurethane foam manufacturing company, ER Carpenter, and uh, I would uh, stay in the the cafeteria, well, it wasn't the cafeteria, it was the break room, uh, during our breaks because, you know, most of the people would go out and smoke dope and drink during lunch and during their breaks in order to do the backbreaking factory work that we were doing. And, um, but I would stay in the, the break room and I would read, you know, and I, for whatever reason, the uh, plant manager uh, took notice of that. And, uh, and he would sit with me and we would talk about the books I was reading because I wasn't just reading AA literature. I mean, I was reading other books. I, you know, I think at that the time that I was reading, I was reading Don Quixote. And he's like, what are you doing reading Don Quixote? You're in a freaking break room in a polyurethane foam. <laughs> and um, anyway, we ended up having a friendship and, 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 um, I'll never forget that um, they were putting in, they were going to install a, uh, a, um, a, a line, a new line in there that manufactured styrofoam. And it would be like one of the only factories in the United States that was going to be manufacturing the styrofoam. And, uh, but they had to recruit a team from within the company to go over to Sweden where this equipment was made to learn how the equipment ran and all of that. And I was like, wow, what an opportunity, you know? And so I put my name in the, you know, the pool there to, to go to uh, Sweden and learn how to operate the styrofoam uh, equipment. And because I was, you know, having lunch with the plant manager, I thought, shit, I'm just, you know, I probably got a shoe in here. And, uh, and I'll never forget the day that they announced the team that was going to go to Sweden and work on the line and my name wasn't on the list. In fact, a couple of the guys who were on that list, I was like, they were some of the biggest stoners in the plant and everyone knew it. And I'm like, what the fuck? So I was sitting in the, in the break room and he came in and he could tell I was pissed. I tried to, you know, keep cool, keep calm. And he told me, he said, you know, because you, you definitely could be going to Sweden and working in this factory for the rest of your life if that's what you really want to do. Because I will, I will put your name on that list. I think acts of kindness sometimes hit me more than acts of cruelty. But uh, he said to me, he goes, he goes, you're wasting your time in the factory. He goes, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. And you're working in a factory? He goes, you should be at college. You should be, become a doctor. And I was like, I didn't know how to respond to that. And um, and I went to my sponsor and I talked to my sponsor about it. And my sponsor said, sure, why not? And I was like, great. 
I'll go to college. It's something I wanted to do. And so long short of it was, is that uh, I quit that job and I ended up going to college and college was one of the biggest, you know, things for me. Uh, besides recovery from alcoholism, excuse me, uh, college you know, is right up there. One of, one of the biggest, bestest events in my life. I love school. I started college at a little Christian college, uh, Goshen College, a Mennonite school here in the States. And um, I didn't last there very long, but, uh, and then transferred over to a public institution. But uh, I earned my degree in uh, secondary ed social studies teacher and um, had a hard time finding a job as a secondary ed social studies teacher in the 80s, there was a glut of teachers in the States at that time. Uh, I went ahead and applied to graduate school. Uh, one of those schools was uh, Harvard University, the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Uh, and they accepted me. And so I attended the Harvard Graduate School of Education for my master's, uh, which I didn't fit in at Harvard at all. <laughs> Talk about you know, gift, be careful what you pray for, you know. I mean, I was just, you know, one generation removed, poor white trash, and I, the most elite institution in the United States. And uh, I did not feel welcomed, nor uh, I belong there. I mean, talk about all of that, you know, early childhood trauma coming up again. Whoa, it was pretty, pretty traumatic. Uh, I had a hard time uh, dealing with Harvard. And, um, uh, but I managed to, to, to earn my master's there, and that was good. I had my, uh, and, I, and I need to just back up here a little bit. I had my second uh, pretty uh, massive depression episode uh, while I was at Harvard. My first one was shortly after I entered college um, in 1985, and I started uh, seeing a therapist. Uh, as a result of, and I ended up um, uncovering some of this trauma that I had buried and hadn't talked about. And, um, and as a result of that, I started carrying a, uh, uh, a razor blade with me and decided that whenever the um, impulse was greater than the, you know, to take my life than the rationale to, to continue living, uh, I would just pull out the razor blade and, and take my life. And they hospitalized me for that. So, and Marsha, I, I did see your note in the chat, so I'm fully aware. I can wrap this up quickly if you, if you want. So, um, the, um, so, you know, the, the, the second thing is, is that, um, I had that second major depression uh, episode in, in Boston, but I didn't seek help for it. Uh, but I found secular organized sobriety in Boston. And that uh, was kind of like the great stopgap measure for me because I was starting to have a hard time with Alcoholics Anonymous and, and all of the God stuff in AA. Uh, and Liam and the great folks at the Boston SOS meeting, uh, they helped me stay in the game. And uh, I was pretty, was able to be pretty honest with Liam about 
my depression and everything. And, and he was the one that introduced me to some of this, you know, research that was being done on trauma in early childhood and how it affects, you know, our lives later as adults. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, I earned my master's degree and couldn't find work and <laughs> ended up pursuing my doctorate because I wanted to teach, I wanted to profess. And I uh, earned my doctorate in education uh, at the University of Cincinnati. And so my first job teaching was at the University of Idaho in Moscow, Idaho, which is up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but it is the lovely place, where it is the place where I met the most loveliest person in the world. And she is still on this meeting with me, and that is my, my lovely wife, Rebecca. Uh, we met at the University of Idaho in um, 2000 uh, is when we met. We uh, married in 2003, so we've been together uh, a little over 20 years. We've been married almost 20 years come January 3rd of uh, next year. We will be married 20 years. Um, I think one of the most difficult things that uh, that happened was that this soon after we were married, we found out Rebecca was with child, our child, which wasn't supposed to happen. She was never supposed to get pregnant again. And my wife is an amazing person. Uh, I wish you could hear her story, which is an incredible story of of survival and resilience. Uh, and she's not alcoholic either. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's just an incredible story. Um, and I'm so lucky. But we, uh, we found out that we were pregnant and it became a very complicated pregnancy. Um, this was also during my tenure year in college. I was going up for tenure and uh, we were also under review for accreditation. Um, I inherited, adopted, or inherited two stepchildren. I had a kid from my previous, and we had this, this very, very dire situation where my wife was eventually hospitalized in Spokane, uh, Washington, which was about two hours, two and a half hour drive from Moscow, Idaho, and I made that commute almost on a daily basis for about six weeks. Um, needless to say, the, the, the happiest and saddest day both uh, happened on January, or on June the 2nd, 19, God, get my dates almost up, 2003. Um, our son Mark was born and he passed away uh, five hours later. And uh, that was a devastating blow, and it was uh, it was it was a loss that uh, you know that no one should ever have to feel. And for those of us who have lost uh, children, uh, it is it is a very difficult thing to to, to talk about. Anyway, I. Uh, somehow managed to stay sober through that. And um, a lot of that had to do with the Alcoholics Anonymous at, uh, in the little town of Lewiston, Idaho. And 
even though they were very godly people and they knew that I wasn't very godly, um, they rallied behind me and my wife and our and our kids and they helped us they helped us stay sane and sober through one of the most difficult times in our life. Um, I'll never forget we were broke and out of the blue, someone sent a check to us out of the mail and uh, because we, you know, just, just so we could have Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, I'll just, I just little acts of compassion like that are just things that uh, I'll never forget. Um, what's it like now? Well, as you can tell, I'm really dealing with depression. It's, it, it is, um, <laughs> um, I've dealt with this condition for as long as I've had my, you know, recovery. And uh, sometimes it is absolutely in remission. I don't have to worry about it. I just, you know, do, do the deal, you know, take my medications and therapy, just continue doing, you know, all the right things. And then other times in life, it just kicks its, rears its ugly head and I have to deal with it. And for the last month or so, it's my depression has been really a bear to deal with. Um, Matter of fact, it was uh, a month ago today, I had to check into a hospital for the second time in my life because I suicidal ideation had prepped in again so severe and so pronounced that I couldn't stop thinking about how I was going to kill myself. The plan had changed, uh, but the fact that I was thinking about it all the time was just and not being able to stop it using you know cognitive behavioral th therapy techniques that I've been trained in as well as dialectical behavioral therapy techniques I've been trained in uh, none of those techniques were helping um, but what ended up helping was was the day I checked into the hospital was surveying uh, my addiction use and my you know and my my history and and the realization of how much I been through and what I've survived, uh, it's amazing that I'm still here at all. So anyway, I certainly had a very different organizational scheme for my, for my lead, but I didn't stick with the plan. I'm, I'm done, Marsha. I'm not going to, I just can't talk anymore. Thank you all for having me. And uh, it's been a real pleasure, and I hope to get back to this meeting just to, to be an interloper and sit there and listen to some of you talk. I really am looking forward to doing that. Thank you.